So, Sandy Joe, let's imagine for a minute we are back in Jesus' days and you are a traveling rabbi. Traveling rabbi. You know, I could pull that off with my hair because of the curly hair. Are you making another hair joke? I am. Okay. Let's get back with the story here. You're a traveling rabbi. You show up at the local synagogue. They ask you to stand up and teach your yoke, your version of the Torah. What do you teach on? Well, that's, you know, that's actually a tricky question because... I would not, as a female, have been allowed to be a rabbi or to get up and teach. Oh, the good old days. Welcome to the Whatever This Thing Is podcast, everybody. Welcome to the Whatever This Thing Is podcast, a podcast about this thing called the church. My name is Chris. I'm one of your hosts. And I'm Sandy Joe, the female with a doctorate. On this week's episode, we're going to go way back. I'm talking way, way back to the book of Exodus to find out where we get some of the roots of influence of how we do this thing called the church or how we are this thing called the church. We're so confused about it, but we're going to talk about it. It's all about church history, the backstory. Have fun. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. We're glad to have you here. Hey, if you haven't had a chance yet to listen to our intro episode, why don't you go ahead and push pause now and go back to that one. That'll give you a bit of a foundation and uh, background for what we're doing here with this podcast. But today I am pretty excited myself because Sandy Joe is the one who had to do all the studying. And I just am going to sit here and ask her questions. I'm really excited about this. We're going to get into the history of the church. And when I talk about the history, like we're going all the way back to like, like old school saddleback. way back, oh, old school way back. back, but okay. Old school so way, we're going back. way back. How far back are we going? Sandy Joe? We're going like, like many years, many years. That, that's, a, that's a scholarly response right there. Awesome. Many years. Well, Hey, with anything we, f- we feel that it's really important to know the backstory to really understand where you're at. Um, there's been many times where I myself, um, have just been sitting in church and wondering, Man, why why are we even here? Why do we do it this way? Why uh, why is there two fast songs and three slow songs and announcements even? Right? Like, why do we do? Because that's the way Jesus said to do it, didn't like, you know? <laughs> I read that once somewhere. <laughs> I, I don't remember where though. Anyways, so that's what we're gonna do today. So, Sandy Joe, like, if we're actually gonna go back to the beginning here and and try to find out like the starting point. Of, of where the influence even kicks into the church. How far back do we need to go? I think we need to go back all the way to the tabernacle. Some people would take us back even farther if we were talking about like the community idea. You can go back to the garden. But we really want to start with where there was an actual building because it's kind of one of the things that we are, you know, building and weekly service that we're really you know, challenging. And so yeah. going all the way back to the wilderness and God's telling Moses to build this tabernacle type thing. And this idea of the tabernacle, it it's that part of the Bible that most of us have just either passed over very quickly or read through very quickly because it's all detailed about how to build this structure and everything else. But this structure becomes a movable thing that they would travel with as they're wandering around okay. in the desert. All right, so you're about to jump into this. I'm about to jump just, in just to make sure I understand where we're going here. We're literally going to like Exodus. Like the only way to get any further back would be to start in Genesis. To one book, yeah, and, one I mean, book prior. 
you know. So, okay, then this is going to be about 20 episodes that we're going to cover the history of the church here. No, cool. So we're going to start in Exodus. We're going to talk about this thing called the tabernacle. We'll progress from there. And uh, like we actually are probably going to have multiple episodes on uh, on this topic to get us caught up to where we currently are. So buckle up, take some notes. The professor, the doctor, Sandy Joe is about to educate, and I'm going to ask a bunch of tough questions and see if I can't stump her along the way. You know, Chris, it occurred to me that we are just really big nerds. I don't know if anybody else thinks I, that. Maybe I we're not smart enough to be big nerds. Podcast, but, but I mean, you know, Chris has read like a million books. Every time I see him, he's got a new book that he's reading. And, and I just kind of collect degrees. I don't know that, I don't think that makes me any smarter. I'm than, pretty sure reading books gets you degrees. I'm pretty like, sure it does too. So that, be a doctor by now. that probably says a lot about how I got my degrees. But anyway, <laughs> the tabernacle. The tabernacle. This, okay. So the tabernacle, what's what the heck is the tabernacle? Yeah. Why 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 are we even going to start with the tabernacle? Well, so the tabernacle again, going back to Exodus, this is what God told them to to build. And so I think you know one of the things we were bringing up is why why a building? Why a place? Why something that that did they need this little building where where they could do sacrifices and all that kind of stuff in? And it seems to be that God was trying to tap into the ancient culture where where other you know religions and other societies were offering sacrifices and they had a, a type of structure they were be, beginning to see buildings and temples and other other religions but the tabernacle is unique in in the Exodus story and all the way up until the temple is built the tabernacle is portable and that is huge that's important so that there was no precedence or no local influence for a portable place of worship that I, we know of. I don't know, I, not that I know of, and so there could be somewhere, someplace. But and then the maybe idea part that of it, uh, at the point of the story that we're in, part of it, I would assume, is out of necessity because let's maybe it's important to bring up like we're at the point of the story where, as the as the Bible tells us, as the writers are describing the story, God has rescued miraculously rescued this nation this actually they're not even a nation this group of people from an empire the egyptian empire he's you know done the whole you just go watch the exodus and the prince know, of egypt actually the prince of be egypt better. and it'll yeah, be yeah. pretty close to the storyline but so god has pulled these people out of empire out of this thing that is very anti-god really and now they're in this wilderness space yeah, and essentially God is kind of trying to teach them how to be human again. Right. Right. And so they're wandering. So part of it almost sounds like it's just out of necessity. Part of it. Yeah. And that, that it has to be portable uh, because they are wandering. Um, But it, it seems to tie in with it, this idea that God is not, or that this idea of sacred space is not in a, a fixed location. Okay. And what becomes powerful is that in this tabernacle and in their 40 years wilderness wandering, um, the tabernacle would be built or would be, would when they would move and come to a new place, they would put the tabernacle in the center of the camp. And then all of the tribes would encamp around it. And for them, it became a symbol of where God's presence was, that he was at the center of, of their of their camp, of their lives. And then you've got, of course, the whole Ark of the Covenant that became famous in the Indiana Jones movie. And, you know, their faces melted off when they pulled the, the 
lid off. Uh, that, Favorite part of the movie. Of course, yeah. it would be. Uh, but God's presence was said to hover above the Ark of the Covenant in that Holy of Holies, in that innermost part of the temple. And so... Wait, that, tabernacle. It was, sorry, yes, you're, very, you're very important. Here. Yes, the innermost part of the tabernacle, uh, God's presence was said to hover above that. And so his presence was there at the center of this tabernacle, and it was movable, it was portable, it was not in a fixed location for all time. Okay, so the tabernacle is this portable symbol um, of God's presence with them, Essentially, it's it is God's dwelling place, at least as they understood as, it. Well, as they understood it, so it was a way for them to connect with God. One of the okay. one of the things that we see out of out of Tabernacle and even the Mosaic Law, the whole you know words like covenant and law. If they've ever bored you, they bored me to tears. Like, what does it mean? What is the purpose of the yeah. law, the Mosaic Covenant? What is powerful? And uh, this uh, Dr. John Hartley talks about this. He's he clarified this idea that the idea of covenant in the ancient, you know, the ancient Near East and the ancient world, it was really about relationship. And so you would go into, you know, enter into a covenant with, you know, really anybody you wanted to, uh, sometimes with somebody of the same status as you, sometimes mm-hmm. somebody who is above you. And the idea of covenant is you would come together and you would have these things that you would agree upon. So the, these things that you would kind of obligate yourself to, you would say, this is what I will do in this relationship. And the other person says, this is what I will do in this relationship, similar to you know the whole marriage covenant today. And God's covenant with Israel was that he was going to love them. He was going to provide for them. He was going to give them a land. And it was his way of saying, I want a relationship with you. Well, the other party, Israel, people, how do you enter into a covenant with God? How do you, what are the things that you can give to God? So these sacrifices and laws became part of that, not as something that people give to God, but as a way for them to participate in the covenant. Okay. Well, what, what becomes powerful is, in a bad way, is that for the Israelites, the law began to supersede the covenant. And that was never the intention. So they began to follow the laws. They began to, to focus on the sacrifices. They began to focus on all of the things that were actually just part of what they were to be responsible for, not to supersede that actual relationship part. Right. So the bottom line, there's God desires relationship with humanity. He is trying to enter into any, and of course with any relationship, there has to be both parties engaged how do you engage in a relationship with a supreme being creator who needs nothing? At that time in history, how do you do that? And so he was literally taking what other cultures were already doing, what they thought they should do in these sacrifices, and he was creating a system that they could physically and uh, visibly be a part of in their in their relationship with God. And so that's the purpose of the tabernacle that's the purpose of the sacrifices the law it's all to to be in this relationship with god but the primary focus was covenant relationship with god the whole idea of a of a uh, kind of a movable structure uh, is powerful when you think about it in terms of of us as humans that we like comfort and mm-hmm. we like stability and we like rhythm 
Uh, I was talking to somebody the other day and they're a church planter and they were saying, um, I I was asking them how they're doing and how their church is doing. And they were saying, you know, it's good, but we'll be really, it'll be really nice not to have to be so portable. You know, we've been, uh, they, they tell you as a church planter that you want to be as portable as possible, as, as movable as possible. Because once you get into- who tells you that? That's new to me. I guess I, well, you missed the memo on that one. I missed the memo. But I guess that's what they, or according to him, that's what they tell church planters that you don't the sooner the when you get into a fixed location inertia begins to set in that mm. are, we begin to get comfortable and we begin to kind of settle and ease back and so it the, immediately this idea of tabernacle and then temple eventually we, we'll talk about it it made even more sense that mm. it is our desire to get into a state of comfort and and just kind of settle in and go with the rhythm of what we have already been doing yeah. but the idea of tabernacle and portability that that kept them trying to reconfigure how and what that meant it kept them movable rather than setting into this idea of comfort very interesting very interesting so Okay, back to this idea, the idea of tabernacle, where did that even come from? Like, did God, you know, communicate through Moses and and say, okay, you need to build me a tabernacle? Did the people, do we have information on how that even came into play? Yeah, well, so it seems as if this was part of the whole Mosaic covenant or or Mosaic law, that that this was part of, of, again, helping them to provide a structure, as you were saying, that they're coming out of Egypt, they need a series of of laws and things that will help them to understand how they are to be human, how they, they are to be in relationship with God. I mean, you know, some of the basic things that he would tell them, I remember reading the Mosaic Covenant and uh, laws and thinking, oh my gosh, this is so silly. Why is he telling them where to go to the bathroom? Like, don't they know? And, and literally it says, if you have to go to the bathroom, go outside the camp. Don't go in the camp. Go outside. Like, who needs to be told? I guess. Well, my 12 year old uh, uh, could really use some Mosaic law in his <laughs> life right now. <laughs> well, and especially because he's a boy. So maybe, <laughs> yeah, yeah. maybe hygiene. Maybe and all that something other kind like, of stuff. hey, like in the toilet at least. Like, <laughs> And then flush, right? I mean, boys. We just dealt with that today. Yeah. <laughs> my wife was screaming. Just came. My wife doesn't scream. She was sternly speaking to our children. Apparently, he needs about to leaving behind some stuff, some, stuff. some presence in the yeah, toilet the, for you. The ones and twos sometimes. That's, that's, <laughs> that's my lifestyle right now. So yeah. So we're, apparently we're you would benefit law, from those, those laws. But again, they were to help them to be, to be human. They helped them to understand as they're coming out of the slave mentality. And so God gives them the directions and the specifications of this tabernacle. What he doesn't seem to do, or what seems to come later is this idea of temple. The temple was something that David initiates. All right. So are we moving on to temple now? I think we can. Because I, I, got, I got like one more question okay, tell on us. tabernacle Go ahead. that I'm trying to figure out here. You say, okay, tabernacle was set up in like when the Israelites would move around, but they'd stop at whatever, you know, whatever to go to sleep or I, I don't know. You know, I, I'm not the PhD here. That's going to be your job. So, but when they'd set up the tabernacle, they'd camp out around it. We're talking like, are we talking millions of people at this point? We don't know, but hundreds we're thinking like hundreds, at least a hundred, you know, hundreds of thousands of people. I've, and I've seen the pictures in my picture Bible. Of yes. What, and those are the accurate. Tabernacle is. Those are accurate. So my, my question here is like, how did all the people 
come and, and worship yeah. there? Or so, did they? Was that so, something they did? Great. You know, like Sunday morning. Right. Can you imagine them all on a Sunday morning? Actually, it wouldn't be wouldn't Sunday morning. Sunday, it would be Friday right. night for them. They would Friday night, hundreds of thousands of people coming around this big building. It just didn't happen. They wouldn't do it every week. They would engage in the tabernacle through sacrifices uh, whenever they need to do their whatever it was sacrifice. They would also engage in the tabernacle um, when they would participate in feasts and festivals. And that's when you could have hundreds of thousands kind of milling around. But the tabernacle wasn't built to hold hundreds of thousands of people in a weekly gathering. And neither was the temple. The tabernacle and the temple, as we'll see, were places where you would go a few times a year, however often you, you could get there, either to celebrate the festival or to come and offer sacrifices. Got it. No weekly gatherings, no missionettes and Royal Ranger programs at the no tabernacle. No paintball. Well, I keep bringing that up because paintball The tabernacle actually kind of looks just, like a good paintball that's course. That's true. That's true. I don't oh, know if that's great. blasphemous or not. But. That would be great. <laughs> yes. All right. So I, I think we've got the tabernacle fairly covered. Um, so what we do know is that at this point, the tabernacle probably has no influence on are where we get this idea of a weekly gathering. It does kind of start that influence of a place where you go to connect worship with God. or, or yeah. go. Yeah. It's, it's a go to this place to connect with God. So um, I see how there's some roots in even what we do today, obviously going back to this point. So from the tabernacle, how let's talk us through, how do we get to, what what is the temple? How did we go from tabernacle to temple? What's the what's the flow there? You know, it's interesting. Even in thinking about the two words, tabernacle and then temple, those are completely different words used to describe two different structures. And again, what we know from ancient societies is that other religions did have this idea of a temple, right. a fixed location. It's they still do. Yeah, still do. Yeah. It 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 we when you talk about this idea of kind of even broad religions who have all of these these sacred spaces, they use this word or this phrase axis mundi, which means the center of the center of the earth or center of the universe, a place where you can connect with the divine or the supernatural. And hmm. you can look at Buddhist Buddhist temples and mm-hmm. they've got a point, some of them at the top, whereas if they're trying to point beyond to something beyond. Right. And so it's it's not something that originates or the idea necessarily originates with the the Israelites. But David seems to, I kind of think of it as, you know, David at the end of his life, he's like, life is good. You know, I've had a great run and he's feeling really good. And he's like, you know, God, I just, I feel really bad that you don't have any. I actually think David was bored because he had (laughs) killed everybody he needed to. He had done all of his wars and he's like, well, what else can I do? Let's build God a house. He was the one who brings it up, right? Yeah, I mean. What else would you do when you're bored? What else would you do? Well, he actually does a very naughty, couple of very <laughs> naughty true. things. But so a lot of bad things can happen when you're bored. But it, it's like he's coming to the end of his life and maybe he's thinking legacy, you know, okay. a structure, a building. Um, and so he he prays this to God and God says to him, I don't I don't need a, a building. I does God live in, in you know, houses made of, of human human hands. Okay, or, so so God's not totally up with David's idea. He it, seems at least to. At first. 
he seems to push it off. But what God does is he allows him to build it. And that's where it's a whole other topic of God's will, God's sovereignty, God's permissive will and his perfect will. And, you know, that's a that's, that's a, a whole, different whole other de- debate and topic that maybe, maybe when we're, maybe we'll get into I don't know, 20 years down the road. Yeah. Um, but it, it, it's, you kind of wonder, well, was God just saying, all right, if you really want to, I'll let your son Solomon build it? Because that's really what he does. You know, could God, could not God have seen the future and what was going to become of Solomon and this empire and this temple? Right. And it's obvious that he, in in our theological view, that he could, but he he allows Solomon or, or yeah, David to, to, or he allows Solomon to eventually build this, this temple. And the temple becomes part of, and it's something we'll talk about, um, maybe not next time, but maybe in a few different podcasts, this idea of empire. Mm-hmm. That Solomon's leadership and his monarchy becomes this, really this foundation for what will become empire and what will become this this Israelite empire, what becomes Solomon's empire. Okay, so... So David's the one who kind of initiates the idea of, of building a temple, building a permanent structure that's going to be a, a dwelling place again for God. How many how many years are we talking about in between kind of like are they still it sounds like the tabernacle has maybe is maybe no longer happening at that point. It, yeah, it's a good they, question. Um we the the Ark of the Covenant is still around. I I just I I love this and I hate this at the same time. I mean, you get towards even several hundred years later by the time you get to the captivity, and the Ark of the Covenant has just like fallen off the face of the Bible. Like we do not know what happens to it. It's there Indiana one minute. Knows. Indiana Jones took it. Maybe went back in time and All took right. it, but it was there and then it wasn't. Like it just disappears, and so there's kind of that flux with the tabernacle as well. There's the assumption, well, David has moved the tabernacle to, to the, the temple mound in Jerusalem. He's the one who kind of inaugurates Jerusalem being the capital city of Israel. And he brings the Ark of the Covenant up there. There's that whole famous story of him doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, he brings the, the Ark of the Covenant up. The tabernacle becomes, you know, part of the temple mound there in Jerusalem. But prior to that, um, it it was possibly in a few different locations. You've got Bethel and Shiloh, and it, it, it's unclear because it's not always referenced directly. You'll hear, you'll see the Ark of the Covenant is referenced, but maybe not, or you'll see something like the House of the Lord maybe being referenced, but not necessarily the Tabernacle. But we do get, we do get at one point again with David this idea that it has a place there in Jerusalem on top of the this Temple Mound, um, and so. It has become a more fixed location, but when Solomon comes on the scene, as Solomon does in every part of his life, every part of his life is extra- extravagant mm-hmm. and extreme. You know, a thousand wives because one is not enough. No, apparently, trust me, one is enough. Just kidding, love you, babe. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and then he spends he spends about twenty years in total building his palace, okay, and then building the temple. So he builds his palace, builds his palace, then builds the temple. How building the temple? How's that? Um, does he use slaves? 
This is where it gets tricky because it's very clear by the time we get to Solomon's son, Rehoboam, that the people are have been overworked because they come to Rehoboam and they say, you know what, if you will lighten the load from us, your, your father really worked us pretty hard. If you lighten the load, we will serve you. We will, we will be loyal to you. And Rehoboam, who probably was just a kid, or he was just stupid, or he may have been both, very, very possibly both. He comes back and says, and he consults some of his younger advisors, and he says, you know, my father worked you just even slightly. I'm going to work you 10 times harder. And so there's the split that happens between the Northern Kingdom and the Southern Kingdom of Israel. So it, it, there's another passage of scripture that seems to indicate that Solomon used other people to build other kind of like slave labor that he brought in. But again, that passage that in Rehoboam, it seems to indicate that Solomon was using everybody for maybe not quite as bad as slavery, but is, you know, indentured servitude or, or whatever it was, right. something where they were working very hard. Who else is going to build this grandiose temple and this grandiose palace? I believe his palace is considered one of the, the seven wonder, wonders yeah, of the world. Yeah. Seven wonders of the ancient world. It was huge. Wow. And the temple, if you read the descriptions, it was, I'm going to call it a monstrosity. I probably shouldn't. <laughs> But God well, hasn't struck me dead yet, so I think I'm okay. Yeah, I mean, if that's the test, then but, you're good. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Okay, so we've got this massive structure, beautiful, I mean, built on maybe some slave labor, at least built on the backs of some people who maybe didn't want to or or would have liked a break every now and then, maybe a little coffee, I don't know. Um, so as you start getting these little, this little taste of empire again, where you, he's building up this thing. Um, they're using, it sounds like they're using the name of God to build it in, right? Yeah. We've got to build this glorious thing for God. Um, but God's already kind of said like, nah, I really don't need that. So maybe there's a little bit of, ah, I really need to build something that makes my name great in, you know, David and, and Solomon really. Um, okay, so what is this temple? They, they build it, they get it done, whatever. God, as he, I mean, one of the beautiful things that, uh, you know, about God is that desire, again, for relationship. And so God still seems to meet us even in our weaknesses. So David, Solomon, well, we're going to build you a temple, God. And, and it sounds like God's like, you know what? I, I love you. I'm going to meet you there. This is, this is not right. my plan, but I, right. but I will still meet you there. And that's what I think is cool about that is that, and I think that's, you know, kind of one of the takeaways and even drawing connections to today that, that, that whatever we have made the church to be, God still amazingly shows up and uses our, our own empires and kingdoms. He still finds a way to connect with people and use us despite that. And that is what is kind of redeeming about that. Um, when they were inaugurating the temple, if you just go back and look at some of those passages, it talks about the amount of animals that were slaughtered. I was reminded of this the other day listening to uh, a professor talk about it. The amount of animals was insane that they slaughtered. Like how many? Give me I like can't even ballpark. remember the number. I would be so exaggerating. Like 10,000? Probably. That's actually, that might be it. I was going to say a million, but that's an exaggeration. But wow. probably thousands just to just to inaugurate this thing. I mean, it was huge. And, you know, there's that one, that one thing that God says to God says to Solomon in the prayer and in the kind of the dedication of this temple where God says 
God says to him, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, then I will turn from heaven and hear their wicked ways and will heal their land. It's a verse we all know and mm-hmm. we've probably quoted before, but that's part of the inauguration prayer. And that's, that's a simplistic way of boiling it down to God saying, you know, the temple is great. Sacrifices are part of the covenant, but really it's about you and your heart and the condition of your heart and where your heart is and its direction towards me. So this temple, this grandiose temple becomes fixed. And for the people who are building this temple, what good does it do them if the temple is overlaid in gold as opposed to wood? What, what does it matter to them who are working very hard, who will come yeah. up there and do sacrifices? Nothing. I mean, other than, wow, that's really cool that this isn't gold. But I mean, I can't imagine that anybody did not start to chip away at this temple. Maybe they <laughs> didn't, but, you know, and start to take some of the gold off of it. But what, what, what benefit to them would it be? One of the things that I was challenged with uh, a professor, uh, Dr. Scott Daniels, he brought this up, and this was a class several years ago. He said... And it was, it was something that was so fast when he said it, they had to go back and say, wait, 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 can you just clarify that for a second? Because I'd never heard of this before, that the temple, that the temple was actually really not part of God's plan, that it actually became problematic. And he, he hmm. brought this idea up that, you know, maybe God really didn't want them to build the temple and that what comes out of this idea of temple changes the dynamic of his relationship with him, even if it's symbolic that it's now fixed and it's massive and it has contributed to the slavery or, and, and the, the amount of money that is spent on a temple as opposed to maybe feeding people who need it or taking care of other things. It was this challenge to a paradigm about scripture that I had never heard of before. Mm. We just kind of assume that what's taking place in scripture is what God wanted to happen as opposed to the writers just simply telling us. Right. Telling it as it is. That's one of the beautiful things about the Jewish culture is they're not afraid to, to, to shed light on the bad side of their history as well. It's kind of like this holistic, like, Hey, this is how life really is. Right. It's not all they Milk don't sanitize honey. It's not it. All yeah, glorious all the time. Right. There's actually junk. There's right. crap that that comes in there, and 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 we're gonna shine light on all of it because yeah. it's this holistic view of life. So yeah, that's that that is an interesting um, perspective, interesting view to say, hey, maybe maybe God didn't want the temple. Um, it certainly seems to make sense. What um. What what are some of the other issues or problems that the temple presented? Like, did it did it become something? It became the 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 not only just the center of worship, but it became the center of focus for the Israelite people beyond. And again, when we're thinking in terms of what the original tabernacle was, and it wasn't just a a little like pup tent that they set up at the wilderness. It was it was actually ornate and it was I mean they had uh, if you look again like at Exodus and the the people that they used the skilled Israelites and their woodworking mm-hmm. ability. It was probably pretty cool looking that tabernacle, but the temple just think in terms of gaudy, you know, like it is right. it's huge and it's gold and it's silver and it's and again for whose benefit. But it became some would suggest that it became the the worship itself, the focus of the worship as opposed to God. And over time, 
they the Israelites go through this back and forth kind of love hate not well or love disregard relationship where it becomes their focus but at the same time the kings certainly of of uh, the southern kingdom of Judah they become more than willing at times to go in and take gold and silver from the temple and pay off these other nations that are coming against them so it's like they love it it's their focus of worship but at the same time they're willing to just disregard it when they feel like you know their country is in jeopardy by the time you get to the captivity of, of the southern kingdom in 587-586, the temple is completely destroyed. Babylon comes in. They destroy Jerusalem. They destroy the temple. And there's a great passage in Ezekiel where it talks about God's spirit lifting up over the temple. Yeah. And Ezekiel's in Babylon, and he's seeing this picture of the spirit, God's spirit just lifting up above the temple. And it seems to reflect God's presence literally moving out of the temple. Now, us as Christians, we take that to mean, well, God was beginning to move in another direction. The temple was really never what he cared about. And it was this symbolic representation that he was trying to say, let's come back to covenant. Let's come back to relationship. For the Jewish people, they seem to have missed that that symbolism because they come back from the captivity, and what do they do? They rebuild the temple, and they rebuild the wall, the wall for the safety of so Jerusalem. So the Jewish people see that as God's presence leaving them? No, or? no, they wouldn't. Christians would see that as God's presence leaving the temple. I see. Not leaving them, but leaving the temple. Okay. Um, but we would see that as God saying the temple, the temple was never my focus and that I, I wasn't meant to live in this confined idea of worship that I am bigger than that. And, and that's where he begins to say, I'm going to write the, the covenant on their hearts rather than on tablets of stone. Yeah. And that kind of starts to sound a little bit like this guy, Jesus. Right. Right. Man. A lot of stuff to take in there. Good stuff so far. Hey everyone, producer Sam here. I'd like to take a moment before we continue on with this episode to thank our sponsor. Promotional consideration is once again provided by Broke Coffee in Orange, California. Broke Coffee, your home away from home. Now let's get back to the show. All right, so we're through tabernacle. We've gone through temple. That's a large part of the Old Testament timeline. So, Sanjo, give us an idea of um, the temple's torn down. Kind of where are we at in the timeline, um, historically, biblically, where are we at? Yeah, so the temple gets torn down in 587 or 586. They, I guess they don't know which year, so they always include both of those years. But that's when southern and northern kingdoms are gone from Israel and Babylon takes over. And that's that puts us at about the end of Second Kings. That also takes us into 70 years later, we get into Ezra and Nehemiah, possibly. They might be a little bit later on. Okay. Um, it takes us into Israel. 
Ezekiel, Jeremiah, all of those guys are right around this time. Um, and again, Ezra comes back. Ezra and Nehemiah both feel compelled. Who are to, Ezra and Nehemiah? These guys are prophets. These are guys are prophets in the Old speaking Testament. Well, at Nehemiah or, was was a cupbearer to the king in Persia right. by that time, and Ezra appears to be a priest. But they both serve as prophets as well. And uh, Ezra begins to feels compelled to rebuild the temple. And he gets, coincidentally, the approval of King Cyrus over in Persia. Per- King Cyrus is a historical figure that yeah. we know of. You can find his, I guess, his stele in um, the Smithsonian or something like that in Washington, D.C. What's a stele? It's, I, it's a funny-sounding word, and I, I hope I said it correctly, but it just means this big tablet of writing. I don't know why they don't just say tablet of writing, but maybe it's, you know, ancient iPad, ancient, ancient iPad is a great way to put it, but it's in the, the Smithsonian apparently because he was known. Cyrus, I mean, Cyrus the Great, apparently, right. Yeah. You texted him a couple, right? Yeah. I mean, Cyrus way back. Um, But he, he, he helps to not only fund the rebuilding of this temple, some, and, and this is a little bit controversial, but some suggest that really it was his temple that was being built. That and they I think, were building Cyrus's temple? Yeah. No, and you, kind of, and kind you of, sound and, like you're getting way out of bounds I know, here. I like, know. It's, it's a little bit heretical, but that they, that they've, because he was in such support of it, that it was really about him building a legacy, kind of like Solomon building okay. a legacy. So this is the second temple. The temple becomes really at this point the focus for the Jewish people. So even though they've had a you know disregard, love, relationship with the temple, they really begin to hone in on it. And when that temple is destroyed the first time, they don't know how to worship God. So they're in Babylon, which is modern day Iraq. They don't know what to do. Okay, so that's important. Yeah. The, the temple gets destroyed and essentially the people are like, wait, how do we... How do we have a relationship with God? Is yes, that like- because everything centered, at least they weren't meeting weekly, and still at that point, they weren't meeting weekly to connect with God through that, but they saw the temple as their relationship with God. Okay, what about like, you know, there's Mosaic law, which was introduced in that tabernacle era of how to live in relationship with God, right? That was never followed, and it was never important until... This time period, which is the what they would call either they call this the second temple period, but that also leads us up to the rabbinical period. Okay. We Christians call it the intertestamental period, which is actually a bad phrase. Don't use it. Why? You really don't know what you're talking about when you say intertestamental period. I said that like a hundred times. I know, times in my but life. use use second <laughs> temple period because there second really isn't period. Okay. a period between the testaments. But that's a whole other conversation. Okay, again, in history, we're we're talking about close to 550 years before Jesus is born. Is that yeah. Yeah, well, we're getting closer, so maybe 400, 300 years. By the time it's finished? Well, it's, no, by the time it's finished, yeah, maybe about 400, 500 years. I'm confusing the destruction of the temple. The destruction of Temple One. Temple One. The destruction of Level One. Yep. For all you gamers out there, is about 550-ish years before Jesus. Right. The... This, the uh, building of Temple Two is when again? It it it's debatable. I think it's in the the sixth fifth century. So you've got five hundreds, four hundreds, around that time, and then it's destroyed again. Okay, so what I'm trying to figure out here is is it about a hundred to two hundred year period where the people are like, hey, how do we worship? No temple. It's at least 
it's probably about a hundred years. So they're okay. in Babylon for seventy years, and and it's marked and it's noted, and and there are people smarter than me who make theological connections about why it was seventy years. But it was seventy years that they're in Babylon in captivity, and at a certain point, Persia, Cyrus. Um, begins to say, okay, now you can go back and you can rebuild. rebuild. Not all of them do. Some of them stay. That's the whole comfort yeah. and inertia type thing. So they stay, but how do they worship God? So at least anywhere from 70 to 100 years, how do they how do they connect with God? They're not really engaged or following the law or the Mosaic covenant. They're simply the temple prior to that. They're focusing on the temple. It's in this time period of the captivity, and even as they're returning, that there begins to be this rise of what they call rabbinic Judaism. The word rabbi is not in the Old Testament, yet it shows up in the New Testament, and nobody, we just don't even blink an eye. We just think, oh, all right, yeah, rabbi. But that was something that was developed because there's no temple. So it's yeah. around this time that the whole Mosaic Law, the, the Torah, which is the first five books of you know the Bible, all of that became super important. And then you've got these religious leaders who then begin to write about it. This is when they begin to develop commentaries about all of the, you know, all of the books that have been written so far, but particularly those first five books. You got things like the Talmud, the Babylonian Talmud and the Jerusalem Talmud. What's the Talmud? That is the, the, I believe it's the commentary on the first five books. And I could, I need to double check that. I but think you're right. I have a book called Every Man's Talmud. Well, there you go. That I have not read yet. I'm though, pretty so. sure it's the, it's the commentary, especially on those first five books, but it becomes, so, so the Jewish people are coming to their leaders and saying, how do we live? All we know is the temple, the sacrifices, the, the festivals, the feasts. How do we practice? And they begin to say, here you go. Here's, here's some laws that you follow. And how do you follow this law now? How do you follow this festival now? How do you do sacrifices when you can't do sacrifices? Mm-hmm. Well, maybe you should pray this way. And maybe you should do this. And maybe you should say this. And maybe you should, should interact with this way. And so... Th- out of that time, you get this whole other, you know, by the time of Jesus, there's a ton of rabbis and a ton of rabbinical schools, and, and they're all interpreting the, the, the Torah and the Mosaic Covenant and the law in various ways until, well, and even it continues even with that, that second temple that, that is rebuilt and then destroyed again. And then Wait, okay, okay, so the second temple's rebuilt. We also have this rabbinic Judaism, these guys that are essentially like these mosaic law Jedi masters going around. right. But they have kind of a different, each of them has like their own different view, I would assume, right? There's a different perspective, different way of reading the scriptures. Um, One rabbi's yoke is what they called it, right? Yes. The way that they're teaching, the way they saw the- Interpretation of the law. Interpretation of the law would be different than the next rabbi's. Was that a, uh, did that present an issue or did, did they embrace that? What? No, it didn't seem to present an issue because again, they they seem to, well, I mean, it provided conflict. You've got conflict between them. I like to compare the rabbinical schools to our modern day denominations. And I actually okay. don't see that as a bad thing. I, th- I see that as inevitable. Everybody who's bemoaning the various theolo- theologies and there's no way to avoid that, that that was going to begin to happen as various people see the scripture in various ways. Hmm. And so that became the way they followed the, the way they followed God. Their focus became so much on never again disobeying God, never again falling out of covenant with, well, not so much covenant, but falling out of 
disobedience and then the law, that they began to practice it on an extreme level. This is coincidentally what leads to the whole legalism and Pharisees of the New Testament. If you read Ezra and Nehemiah, they were intense guys. I would not have wanted (laughs) to be alive back then. I mean, you get some passages where Nehemiah is like beating some of the guys. Some of the guys have married Gentile wives and he's like, "Uh uh-uh, divorce them. And he's like, he's literally beating them. whipping them? Yeah. I mean, Is he the one who's like ripping dudes beards out or something? Maybe, yes, yes. Yeah, he's not the guy you want to go grab a beer with. No, he was, um, he was a little intense. And so, <laughs> but they're focused. They were so traumatized by having been kicked out of the land. They were so traumatized by the temple being destroyed that they go to the extreme. And so by the time you get to Jesus, you've got all of these regulations and, and additional laws on top of the, the laws. And because it's, it's in their understanding, again, they were focusing on law as opposed to covenant. Gotcha. And they were trying to rebuild and repractice what they originally knew, um, and yet it was keeping them in the same system that God never really cared about or at least never was concerned about. So they build a second temple, either Ezra's temple or Cyrus's temple, depending upon your opinion, <laughs> and then it gets destroyed by the Greeks because the and Greeks that's take around over. 70 AD, this is right? One, this is 164 Where am I getting 70 from? 70 AD is the the temple's finally destroyed and it's never been rebuilt. And that's when the Romans destroy it. Gotcha. And uh, so that 164 mark is when it's partially destroyed. And then Herod comes along when he's finally in power and he... Finishes the job. Well, he rebuilds it and it becomes known as Herod's temple by the time you get to Jesus. Gotcha. Okay, so we still kind of have this temple period, but then there's this like undercurrent of this rabbinic Judaism that's flowing in there. Um, Does the rabbinic Judaism, does that take a lot of the uh, focus off of the temple? Interestingly, it doesn't, at least by the time you get to Jesus, it doesn't seem to. It seems as if the two are beginning to work in tandem. Okay. Um, during that period, that that second temple period, we start to see this word synagogue pop up. And again, synagogue is not a term in the Old Testament, but it's a term in the New Testament. Right. And uh, the, first, the first synagogues, I guess, were possibly in Egypt, like three centuries before Jesus. And it's it became local places where you could go and actually pray, but really learn from from kind of, the, or learn about the Torah or hear sermons. Okay. Um, and so it began to crop up during this time when there was a temple and then there wasn't a temple during this time when the rabbis gotcha. start to rise up. So there's multiple synagogues. There's multiple not synagogues. one. So there, there's the a previous, temple. we have one tabernacle, right. we have one temple, but now maybe again, just by necessity because the people are spread out right. across the Roman empire at right. this time, there yeah. are, building closer places where they can come and, and hear the teaching. And, they're coming and to hear the teaching and they're coming to gather together. And this, as one uh, Jewish scholar makes the point of saying, this is where you begin to see like prayer in the synagogue. You didn't really mm. pray in the temple. You went to the temple to offer sacrifices to, to I mean, you could pray, nobody's going to stop you, but right. it's not like you prayed or heard a sermon Okay. In the tabernacle or the temple, it was really just a place to go and and do your thing. Connect so the with temple God. was actually the place where you went to to perform 
the religious your, ritual. your religious ritual or to engage in your side of the relationship. Yes, your obligation to the relationship. And it wasn't a place to go receive. No. Right? It right. was a place to go and engage. Right. Okay. And then by the time you get to the synagogue, again, the, the religion has just shifted. Their understanding of how to relate to God shifts. And by this time and still to this day for the Jewish faith, the, the way they engage their, their religion is through the Torah, through the law, or through the scripture, the, the Tanakh. Through following the, the Studying rules it, those. following it, engaging it. They would see, even though they go to temple, I think even today they would see it as secondary to, to the scriptures. The scriptures are the most important thing. The Torah, especially the first five books, the most important thing for the Jewish faith. Okay, so when the synagogue, like you're saying, they even to this day go to temple, um, but back in you know the history, the temple level one, level two that we we're talking about, that that really wasn't a weekly thing. What about the synagogue? Was there a weekly go to the synagogue type thing going on? It seems to be. It, it's hard to know, and there's other people who probably have done more research on it than I have, but it seems to be both a place where you would go for like Hebrew school. Mm-hmm. Um, all It seems like at a certain point, boys and girls up to a certain age went and learned the scripture. That's what they learned. And they learned how to be a good, a good Jewish person, a follower of, of, of God and his teachings of Yahweh. And it seems as if, and it talks about Jesus going into the, the synagogue on the Sabbath. Right. And it talks about Paul doing that in the book of Acts. It's, it seems as if they did, but it's hard to know whether they went every week. And it's hard to know if it was for everybody to go every week. It doesn't, it, it, it's clear that you would, let's say, start a synagogue. You got 10 people in, in an area, 10 or 12 people. I can't remember which number. Mm-hmm. 12 seems more biblical, but I think it's only 10. Um, that you would get, if you've got these men together, then in a certain area, you could start a synagogue. Well, they don't mention women or children. So okay. by a certain point, it's probably men getting together. And, and again, it, it, it could be women and children, but they're not mentioned. And mm. it's possible they're doing this every week. But it's also possible that they're not, because again, that's not how they saw their relationship with God by that point. They're seeing it as, in an extreme way, following the law and following the, the religious laws of the... of. Right. So really, the only weekly rhythm and cadence that we see is this idea of Sabbath. Is Sabbath. But again, that's, that's... tied into Mosaic law. Um still that's a whole other right episode uh, but, that we could focus on but sabbath was the rhythm of their weekly right. time whether they were again probably i'm going to say probably were not coming together on that weekly time they were resting they were you know they were resting they were trying to they were praying maybe but that they were eating a lot and of they were food, eating right? a lot of food so that i mean they prepared. Be, i would assume they'd be together at least with family and engaging the sabbath that way right and you know by the time you get to the ad 70 mark which was the you know final destruction of the temple they had and even you know jesus when he begins to engage in the temple the temple had once again become part of a very very important focus for them. So there are synagogues and they may utilize the synagogues and some of them may use the synagogues, but the temple had become 
the point of their their focus once or at least a part of their focus once again so now that they've got the 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 temple they can participate in sacrifices again and as one Jewish scholar talks about it he says you know when that temple was destroyed in that 80 70 mark that and the the Jerusalem was also I mean Titus the Roman mm-hmm. uh, I think he's the Roman Empire emperor at that time or he's the Roman general I can't remember he when he comes down hard on them because they're trying to revolt and this is just the Jews it's so devastating it's so awful that it's almost even to this day they say it's almost as bad as what they experienced in the Holocaust well that's a pretty high wow. bar yeah for them to see it that way but for them. Not only was it their temple, but it was the the land, the Jerusalem, the city that they're being kicked out of, and it's completely destroyed. So the temple has long been, beyond the synagogue, has long been their point of focus. It has been the the power, by the time Jesus comes on the scene, it's the, the seat of power for the religious leaders. Mm-hmm. And it's it's where they're making a lot of money, actually. Um, okay, the, yeah. The priesthood are making a lot of money. And it's one of the reasons why when Jesus goes into the temple and he clears it out, he does it during that whole Passover week and his final, his final days on earth. And he goes into the temple and he clears it out. And it is where they're buying and selling all of these, you know, the animals for sacrifice. And he's clearing it out because they're cheating people out of, you know, they're giving, they're paying top dollar for the best animal and they're getting like this lame literally animal who may be blind whatever um but they're also using you know dishonest scales and all that kind of stuff but that's only one of the reasons why jesus is is clearing them out the other reason or the other couple of reasons is that by that point they had become so comfortable and so lazy that they were going and buying their animals at the temple and buying their sacrifices at the temple as opposed to bringing them as opposed to taking them from their own Gotcha. Property. So it's like let me just let me just do the minimum, just enough to get by, to get lackadaisical with it. To where it's like, okay, God wants a dead dove, so let me give God a dead dove to keep this going, and and I'll just buy it at the, the temple because that's way a whole to lot. Do it is, yeah, they've got the doves there. Okay. And and again, what's taking place there is the the priesthood, the religious leaders. They're making a ton of money on this thing, and the temple is their seat of power. And so as Jesus goes in there, he's establishing and it's right before he dies. And he only is able to do it then because every time he would have gone to the temple prior to that, if he had done it more than once, as some people think, Uh there's no way they would have let him back in the temple. Some people think he did it at the start of his ministry. (laughs) They would, every time they see him coming, they're like, lock the doors. This crazy guy is coming. He's going to, you know, shove us out of the, he was very strategic. Yeah. So he did it. He's like, I'm dying in a few days. Let's take care of this temple yeah. issue now. Let's show these people who's really boss. And the other reason, which which I think is significant, is that through this construction of the temple, there are a couple of places where only the Gentiles and women could go. So the mm. men could go into, there's three different sections of the temple. We've got the Holy of Holies and the, the back part, Ark of the, well, the Ark of the Covenant wasn't there anymore, but only the high priest could go. The innermost part of the temple would be, or the inner temple, um, would be where Jewish men could go. But then there was the outer court, and the outer court was was only the place where Gentiles and women could go. Well, where are they selling these animals and everything else? They're selling it where Gentiles and women 
That was the only place they could go. And it was taking up the space, preventing Gentiles and women from being able to enter this sacred oh, okay. space. So it's just like this real it, practical, like just space yeah. issue that's and it's, also it's, being created. It's showing the inconsiderate nature. Yeah. It's showing the it's showing that the temple by this time, well, and you could even argue back in Solomon's day, had become this institution, this this place that had taken over really what what God wanted it to be. And it's almost like when Jesus says, you know, you call, you know, God says that this place is a house of prayer and you've made it a den of thieves. It's also, it's almost as if Jesus is saying, and you guys, this is what you consider sacred. This place is sacred for you guys. And yet you're not even keeping it sacred. You're cheating people. You're keeping people from worshiping. Um, and you're, you're cheating God because you're trying to find this, this shortcut to worship. And so again, the idea of inertia and comfort, and let's just kind of go the easy way into, into church where, or into temple where we're able to, we kind of are participating, but we're kind of not because we're not bringing our animals with Check us. The box off we're just and, checking the box okay. off. I've done my sacrifice. Um, I don't really care if Gentiles and women can really make it in there as long as I can check off my box. And the people in power, they have a lot of power. They're making a lot of money. And um, and they don't like it when Jesus does what he does, of course. Got it. Okay, so we've got, we've come all the way from tabernacle, this movable symbol of God's dwelling place among the people. You got, then we got this idea of temple, this massive structure. You go and do your sacrifices there. Um, again, it starts to become more of this institutional thing that even seems to have some, uh, some of the flavor of empire creeping in, which we know God is not on board with empire. He rescues people from the, these, this thing called empire. Um, then temple gets destroyed, but it's so important that no, we got to build it back up again along the way. This, again, the, uh, the force comes along the Jewish Jedi masters, the rabbinic tradition comes in. And so there's these traveling teachers, all of a sudden these synagogues pop up in local places where there's maybe 10 or 12, um, minimum men. So it could be this local place where they could go and gather, um, teach each other, learn, uh, hear the Torah read, um, possibly even a place of, of study for students um, to eventually maybe become a rabbi or just to know and fulfill the tradition. Jesus enters this scene where there's still this temple presence. There's also this synagogue thing going on from what we understand jesus is kind of like a traveling preacher like he's he's right. going around and he he has these opportunities to to teach in these synagogues right. right um okay so now we're 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 where jesus has stepped onto the scene here and we already know jesus is up to something new right because we have a New Testament. That's how we know that. Did that you know that? That is true. That is true. Yes. Yes. <laughs> good. That's good. So Jesus is on the scene. He's he's starting to preach. He's 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 flipping tables at the temple, which is a big no-no. He's getting into all kinds of trouble 
with the religious leaders. So obviously Jesus isn't drinking their Kool-Aid. He's doing something different. He seems to be going against the religious system, the religious system from top to bottom. So he's, he's not, and there's all these different religious groups. The priests were probably part of the Sadducees and, and then you got the Sanhedrin and then you got the Pharisees over here and he's going against all of them. He's making waves against all of them because all of them, whether it's the temple and the priesthood and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin or the Pharisees and the rabbinic teachings and the various rabbis, he's going against all of them because he said, you've all missed it. You've all institutionalized or uh, made something for yourselves of what God originally intended. What are the Pharisees getting out of it? Well, they're getting followers. They get to set up laws. They get to create, uh, again, existing law or uh, build additional laws around existing laws. So they've got a lot of power. What are the priests getting out of it? They're getting money and power. Everybody at this point, well, not everybody, but a lot of people are in it for themselves because it becomes this institution. And Jesus participates in these religious traditions. He was called a rabbi and we we don't fully know whether he, he must have hung out and kind of, you know, hung around people who were teaching, but he's described as this rabbi referred to as a rabbi. He goes into the synagogue. He goes into temple. He engages in these religious traditions, but he doesn't seem bound by them. And that's huge. Hmm. So he's going there but he's not bound by all of these things. So he, you know, he stands up on uh, right after his baptism, he goes in in Luke chapter four and he stands up and he reads from the scroll of Isaiah. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor and that whole passage. And then he sits down and says, today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. So he goes in just to kind of do a mic drop and be like, <laughs> bam, here I am. Right. He goes up to temple, but he then kind of, you know, I mean, makes a fuss and a scene right. and, and sends everybody running. I mean, even one of the biggest things that Jesus gets in trouble for saying is, you know, hey, tear this temple right. down and in three three days, I'll rise it again. Right. right? So at the time, they're thinking like, what do you mean? It took us forever to build this temple. You, right. You know, you're, you're saying you're going to tear the temple down. Right. We're going to, you know, we're going to use that against you. But we realize at this on this side of history that Jesus was actually referring to himself, his right. body, right? And so it seems like it's kind of this, hey, in fact, Jesus is kind of saying like, hey, actually, we're all like these walking temples. Right, like, which is what Paul affirms when you get to 1 Corinthians. And, you know, the, the uh, when Jesus is talking about kind of the end times type of thing and the disciples say to him, um, you know, this temple is pretty big, you know, it, in it, and in referencing to that, right. it's taken us a while to build this. And, and Jesus says, you know what, there's going to be, or no, they, they divert his attention and say, look how amazing our temple is. And some see it as they were really just trying to like change the subject because it was mm-hmm. getting too intense and kind of like look a squirrel and so he he says you know guys there's going to be a time when the there's not even going to be one stone left on another and it's those types of comments that lead people to go jesus doesn't seem to care about the temple and and it's not just because he was there to set a new covenant which he was God really didn't seem a whole, it appears to us, didn't seem to care about this idea of temple. Yeah, when he's, you, he's much more concerned about how you're treating the neighbor 
Loving God and loving your neighbor. How you're yeah. treating the temple. and I was teaching a class over the weekend, and we were talking about the New Testament. And, um, you know, I said, Jesus only uses the word church, or at least Matthew attributes that Jesus only used the word church three times, and it's in two separate verses in Matthew. And the one that is famous that we know of, you know, um, uh, referencing, you know, Peter's affirmation that he was the Christ, and he says, you know, you have said it correctly, and upon this rock, meaning Jesus said himself, uh, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not come against it. Well, you know, last podcast, we talked about the fact that the church means called out, or called out ones. So, Jesus is saying, upon my people, or, or upon me, I will build my church, but the, and, and the gates of hell will try to come against uh, my people and will mm-hmm. not be able to, to come against it. That, that word for church, again, means the called out ones or the community of the believers. Well, because we're coming at it from a 21st century mindset, or even by that, you know, 500 years ago of... 1500 mindset we're thinking local church local pastor or even the you know just kind of even the the broader context of many buildings many many local places um that the gates of hell would not be able to come against his community the community of believers each believer is part of that that following and so jesus and and one of the questions i asked this class was you know why do you think it was that jesus doesn't talk about the church a whole lot he mentions it twice don't we find that to be significant? Because we base a whole lot upon the church. And somebody said, I, I think somebody said, well, because he, he doesn't seem to be interested in it. And, and then the question was, well, what is, the, what is the real focus of Jesus? It's discipleship. It's loving God mm-hmm. and loving your neighbor. Could Jesus have talked about the church a whole lot more and its structure and everything else? Sure. But why would he have? Did he really care about replacing a temple and a synagogue with a whole other system of hierarchy and buildings right. and and how this is supposed to look? And here's how much you're supposed to tithe and here's how much you're supposed to volunteer. Jesus was focused on the discipleship community, the, the called out ones, the believers. And that is that's the crux of his focus. Go and make disciples, not go and make disciples. And build churches. And essentially, that's a call back to where this all started in Exodus of God calling his people out of Egypt, bringing right. them, entering into relationship with right. them in the wilderness. And God, you know, through Moses gives this law. It's this, hey, you've, you've been slaves for over 400 years. All you know is slavery. I'm trying to teach you to be human again. And, and teach you what that looks like. Um, and that's what Jesus does. Right. That, that I'm teaching you, I'm pulling you out of an enslavement. And at that time it was this burden, that whole, I love that passage in Matthew 10 where Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, I will give you rest. Take my yoke. And we have misunderstood that word yoke. He was talking about my teaching, take my teaching upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart. 
that he was saying to them, guys, there's a better way. The learning mm. that you've been receiving from the Pharisees and everybody else, it's so loaded. It's so burdened. It's so heavy. And I'm going to teach you a new way. You've been enslaved by this legalism, and I'm going to teach you a new way. And he does, similar to what he does with Moses, or similar to what, what God does with Moses and the Israelites, Jesus does with his disciples. In that day, the rabbi would call people to discipleship, and he calls Peter and, and yeah, John me. and James, follow me. And so the whole meaning of that word, the called out or the called out ones, that makes perfect sense that these are the people that Je- that have responded to Jesus's calling out from the world and saying follow me so when he says I will build my church mm-hmm. I will build my people I will build the called out ones and so what's the purpose then behind these called out ones that he's building what are they, what purpose are they to accomplish in 30 seconds they are to accomplish living out the kingdom of God. They are to accomplish loving God and loving their neighbor and expressing the kingdom of God wherever they go. That the kingdom of God is a reality. It is available to every person, but most of the world is is in darkness to that reality of the kingdom of God. And so we are to be that that light that Jesus talks about, to live out that purpose, to love God, love our neighbor. And in that way, we establish, we illustrate God's true kingdom, his true reign everywhere beyond the confines of a building and and a, a local leader or a, a local concept. Got it. So this church, these people, these called out ones are essentially those walking temples bringing that image of God, that dwelling place of God to those without him, rather than saying, look how glorious our temple is. You should come here. Come check out. It, huh? Yeah. Come check out uh, our, our, hmm. our nice, I was going to say empire, but man, that maybe, we'll get into that another yeah. time, man. That's a, I, I probably got 50 pages worth of notes in there. That's a lot to swallow and, and I chew think, on. That's good. I think that some of what I said is true. That is my guarantee. If you got 10%, some, we're good. Some of what I said <laughs> is true. Producer Sam will edit out all of the false, um, poor theology, right? Mm-hmm. Good, good. That's your job. And uh, don't screw it up. So, man, awesome. Well, thanks for hanging in there, everybody. Hopefully you did not fall asleep. I was engaged. Producer Sam didn't fall asleep. He was engaged. He didn't fall off his stool. Sandy Joe pretty much talked the whole time. I think. So that's either a good or a bad, good. depending. No, it's, it's usually good. Because yeah, we'll um, after our intro episode, it was pretty evident who the educated one was. I don't know. I spent the last three weeks convincing people I'm not the one with the PhD. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. Um, in the coming weeks, man, we're going to pick it up from here. We're going to talk about the the early church. I uh, hit a little bit on, on some of the church after uh, Jesus' ascension, essentially where it's born in the book of Acts and how it goes on through uh, Catholic... Catholicism? Is it catechism? Or, or Catholicism. Catholicism. That one works too, if you want to use that one. But I like Catholicism. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sticking with it. Um, 
and much more Martin Luther Reformation all the way up. Uh, we're going to eventually get to where we're at today so that you have a pretty solid understanding of why it is you are waking up at, I don't know, 8 or 9 a.m., putting on your Sunday best and going to a building to experience church. We're going to try to make perfect sense of all of that. Talk to you next time. That's going to do it for this episode. If you like what you've heard, follow us on social media and share this podcast with your friends. If you didn't like it, or you had a question, comment, concern regarding this week's topic, please email us at whateverthisthingispodcast at gmail.com. Music for this episode is provided by Wolf. Promotional consideration is once again provided by Broke Coffee. Broke Coffee, your home away from home in Orange, California.